we really are pressed for time, so I, I'm not going to say uh, too much. Keep your fingers crossed. Uh, I'd like to have uh, my partner, Bob Swanson, say a few words, so I'm going to save some time for him, and then we'll open it up for discussion. But uh, let me just say one thing. I think you'll hear uh, during the course of the uh, symposia several themes, one of which is to follow what uh, where things that excite you and, and take your interest. And that's very important, and hard work, and that's very important as well. But I'd like to get back to this theme of doing something that excites you and takes your interest, because if you do that, you'll spend all your time thinking about it. You won't have a nine-to-five job. You will be thinking about it while you're sleeping or while you're taking a shower and while you're at work and while you're at play. It's just something you can't leave at home or leave anywhere. So I think that, for me, that's always been the key thing. And in a way, that points out uh, an aspect of, of science and being a scientist that bothered me for, for some time. And that is that being a scientist is really a fairly selfish and self-centered profession. And you heard uh, Mr. Linowitz talking at lunchtime. He's charging you with, with uh, doing things for your brothers and sisters in the world. Uh, and when I was younger, a long time ago, I used to be concerned about being a scientist because I took a lot of satisfaction out of doing science. It was fun. And there are several components to, to doing science. And, and one of them is that you can really experience uh, degrees of elation that I can't imagine how else to, to, to do it. And those come very seldom. Very occasionally, you will be doing an experiment. Anybody who is a scientist here will, will know what I'm talking about. You will. Do an experiment, you come to a point in time where you realize that you know something that nobody else has ever known before. And that's really unique, uh, at least I think so. And then that, that's the selfish component of science. Then the next thing you do is you run out and you tell all your colleagues about what you've done because you want to share it with them. And in a way, that's a little bit selfish as well, because you take great joy and say, ah, I knew that before you did, and look how good I am, and so on and so forth. But that's, that's a very exciting part of science. There's another part of science, which I was, as I said, I was worried about, but uh, eventually uh, there comes a time when you realize that perhaps the thing that you, that you are interested in, you take a good deal of pleasure from, may actually benefit. Uh, mankind and your brothers and sisters. And I've been very fortunate to experience that to some small degree. And to a large part, that's because Bob Swanson came along about 10 years ago when he was a youngster. And uh, he said, do you think this technology that you've been working on is ready to be commercialized? And I said, yes. And he says, well, let's do it. And that sort of bowled me over because I'd never thought about doing anything like that before. And at that time, my last education started, and that was an education of the real world, what business is like and what uh, commercial opportunities are out there and, and how you could apply science to industry and to mankind. So the satisfaction, the third component of the satisfaction of science came, and it hit me for the first time about two weeks ago. Uh, when I, at my son, youngest son's graduation from high school, 
one of the adults there came up to me and said, I'm a friend of so-and-so, and so on and so forth. And my son was the first person to be treated with human growth hormone, which Genentech has now made commercially available. And he's grown 12 inches in the last year. And you can't imagine how much that means to him. And I told these parents that that meant a lot to me because it was the completion of uh, the satisfaction that one gets from being a scientist. So I feel very lucky then to have experienced these things. And I hope you will too someday. And uh, just leave that with you. And if Bob would like to say anything now, uh, I'll let him take over. Well, it, it wasn't actually that easy to get in to see Herb in those days. And in fact, ex except for the years, uh, we look uh, very much the same. Uh, I had a gray suit on, and I never saw one of those in the laboratory before. And uh, I kind of wandered in. Uh, after fighting for uh, an appointment, which uh, Herb said, well, I can spare you 10 minutes on Friday afternoon, because I said, I think this science is ready to commercialize. And, and uh, he said he was very busy, and uh, we finally got my 10 minutes, and uh, it turned into three or four hours, and we both hit it off. And what came out of that was a decision to try and commercialize a technology that uh, uh, we thought was ripe, but most other people at that time uh, thought was many years away, 10 or 20 years in the future. And, and, and maybe if that's a, a, a message that, a theme that, uh, that Herb uh, started, which was uh, uh, do it. Uh, I think the thing that at that time, as I was worrying about uh, laying my career on the line of starting a company, what if it failed, uh, what uh, if the technology wasn't ready, and uh, actually the, uh, the first time we hooked up a, a, a gene in the perfect sequence to the promoter, and was supposed to produce a brain hormone, somatostatin, nothing came out. <laughs> you could see the whole thing flash before you. And finally, we hooked it up again and did some tricks, and it worked. Uh, but the question that sort of drove me at that point in time to, to go for it, if you will, was uh, the one which uh, said, if you look back over your life and you're an old man now, what would you have wanted to do? And that sort of brings it all into focus. What is really important to you in terms of trying to get something accomplished? And we were, we were lucky. The timing was right. The technology paid off. And we were able to produce, for the first time, a, a human hormone uh, in a microorganism. And we went on from there to now have produced human insulin for the treatment of diabetes, human growth hormone, which Herb is talked about uh, recently approved interferon for as an anti-cancer treatment and working uh, additionally on uh, something that dissolves blood clots that cause heart attacks uh, which we're now waiting for the FDA to approve and some of you may have seen the announcements in terms of the steps we've taken in uh, solving the AIDS situation in the development uh, path for a vaccine so it's it's nice to see uh, the science get converted into 
products that uh, can benefit people. And uh, what gives me really a thrill is, is doing that, but sort of building things, uh, the idea of creating something where there wasn't something there before. We've gone, grown now to about 1,000 people. Uh, over uh, 150 of them have PhDs, so we're a pretty good-sized university department in one sense. Um, and uh, we've got some products that are now uh, getting out to the, the people that need them, and in a sense, the same people that, through their taxes, uh, paid for the basic research many, many years before the, the technology was uh, available to pull a bit of basic research from here and a bit from there and a bit from over there and put it all together into uh, making something useful, which is what we did. Just south of where I live in Tule Lake, California, they want to release a genetically engineered frost-inhibiting bacteria. There's been a great public outcry there, and they've gotten a court order to prevent that from happening, and right now they're fighting it in court. But I'd like to know, from your standpoint as scientists, what are the risks and what are the ethics involved with testing materials that are genetically engineered? The uh, experiment, the field experiments you refer to deal with, for those of you who don't know, deal with the release of a microorganism which has been altered very slightly, and the alterations that have been uh, incurred by this organism were not uh, of a very sophisticated manner, it's a rather straightforward uh, manipulation. The uh, manipulation itself removed or inactivated the gene which is necessary for the production of a protein by this microorganism, which in turn brings about the nucleation of ice crystals on the plants upon which these microorganisms grow. They're common microorganisms found on plants already. And this, the, the scientists and the firm involved have altered that gene in order to eliminate the problem of frost damage to plants. Now, my own personal viewpoint is that this experiment is not dangerous in uh, experiments that have been conducted in fairly controlled situations. It appears to work. It does prevent frost. The idea is that these uh, defective microorganisms would be sprayed on plants and would compete, successfully or not remains to be seen, uh, for the surface of the plant. And if they could compete at all, they would prevent frost from damaging various types of crops. And the, the benefit from that would be uh, increased yield per acre, if you will, of whatever that crop might be. Personally, I, I have no problems with it. Um, I don't think there is a real danger involved. Um, the controversy surrounds, uh, in part, uh, the, the fact that these experiments could be classified under Environmental Protection Agency uh, dictates. And uh, uh, so those, uh, I think, have been addressed to a certain extent. But the communities have asked for injunctions and have received them up to this point. I think eventually the experiments will be done. I think probably not this year because the frost season's over, but uh, perhaps next year. 
I think the ethics of the situation has to deal with examining the uh, concerns of various groups of people, uh, including the people who live in the local community. They have to be dealt with. In some cases, these have been ignored. I mean, I think they, they did a bad job in terms of taking these experiments to the public. Uh, but I think they can be dealt with. I think the ethics of it involves uh, dealing with the concerns and fears of uh, people, and I think you just can't dismiss them by word of mouth. Uh, but I think you try to get the best opinions. The best opinions, I think, say that they are not dangerous, as are, the, I think, the majority of, uh, of many of the uh, uh, biological experiments that deal with genetic engineering. Um, yes, you mentioned there are quite a few PhDs at Genentech, and much has been made of the so-called brain drain. Um, from the universities to the growing biotechnology industry. Um, I'd like to know if you feel this is necessarily good or bad, and if bad, what might be done about it? Well, I think it's good. Uh, not only does, uh, you know, before this industry started, uh, there were lots of people around looking for a few assistant professorships. And uh, what's happened is that as you move any new technology, which has its basic basis in uh, basic research in the university to industry, the best way to achieve that very rapidly is uh, through the transfer of people, which provides opportunities within the university for the bright young people uh, to take on greater leadership and more roles. And so I think it's a, it's a wonderful process and it's uh, absolutely critical to getting any new product that was a basic, uh, came out of basic research. So we have a few comments there. Uh, when we uh, put Genentech together uh, years ago, we tried to establish uh, an atmosphere, which I think we've been fairly successful in doing, establish an atmosphere of, uh, of academic research at Genentech. And we tried to take the best of uh, the university setting and put it together with the best of uh, industry setting. And I think we've been successful at that. And, and let me illustrate that in the following way. Um, the number of scientists at uh, Genentech is about equivalent to the number of scientists in uh, the department in which I sit at the University of California in San Francisco, 100 plus. And just recently it was pointed out to me that the number of articles published in reputable science uh, journals, not just uh, flack, but uh, reputable scientific journals, that the number of publications per year from Genentech uh, exceeds that from uh, my own department. So I, I think, you know, I, I think that's a tribute to uh, what Bob has uh, managed to maintain as a, a very exciting atmosphere at Genentech. And uh, the other comment I would make along those lines is that Biological sciences today is sort of approaching the point of the physical sciences perhaps 20, 30 years ago in which the need for a concerted effort from people with different specialties with, uh, for, for technolo varying technologies, that's all necessary to attack a particular uh, program of research. You can't, the, the days of one scientist working alone in a laboratory with a system are more or less gone. I mean, you really have to interact with uh, uh, many other people and with other groups. And that sort of thing is provided at Genentech because the 
the company sees this as a way of promoting science and promoting the, the progress of the company. And that is something that's not easy to obtain in an academic setting. So I think there are a lot of benefits from industry. It's not the only way to go, obviously. Um, yes, I have a question. What do you think are the moral responsibilities of a scientist for the products of his research? Um, you know, we've had examples in, in physics, you know, um, where the, you know, the, the products have been both good and bad in, in terms of, um, um, you know, uh, n nuclear bombs and nuclear react reactors and, you know, other uses of nuclear power. Um, and, and there are examples in biology where genetic engineering can be used um, to do good, to make um, better crops, and also it could conceivably um, be used um, to, to do harm. Um, what, what, how responsible is a scientist for, for, what, for what he makes? Uh, I think that's uh, it's a, a very good question. I think that the uh, responsibilities, whether they're moral or otherwise, um, uh, that, that are borne by scientists are the same as those borne by uh, the rest of society. Uh, you have a responsibility to, to be informed and then make an intelligent decision. Uh, scientists or people involved with the, the technology in question have the additional responsibility of sitting back and trying to assess whether or not uh, a danger is really involved and then trying to present a fair uh, uh, point of view or a fair dissemination of information to, to society and make recommendations. And uh, then we'll see, then we make a, a collective decision although that's not always the most efficient way to do things. Uh, and I might point out that um, in 1975 or 1976, when genetic engineering sort of became uh, fairly mundane, and uh, it's, one could do this technology in a fairly ordinary way, uh, that scientists did call for a gathering of uh, those individuals involved in the technology and they discussed the issue uh, at a Silmar in California. It's now known as the Silmar Conference of whatever, I think it was 75. And out of that came a set of recommendations on how to conduct research. And it was thought at that time that there was no danger involved in this technology, or very little. And if there, the danger that was involved was minimal and could be managed. And I've felt that, and I think that uh, in 10 years that's been borne out. There, there have been no um, accidents, there have been no disasters, there has been no indication from any research. And some research was actually designed to test the possibility of dangers. And uh, in that 10 years period of time, uh, there is no evidence at all that uh, any of the applications of the technology, at least to this point, are dangerous. Um, there are still some ethical questions to be addressed, namely how far does one go in manipulating the, uh, the genome or the genetics of uh, individuals, in particular humans, uh, but I think for the most part, the, the dangers have been dealt with. Most of the scientists today don't feel uh, that there's any uh, real problem involved. But I think everybody's keeping their, their eye open for any possibilities that might come up. Uh, Dr. Boyer and Dr. Jensen, I was wondering if your company has any plans, commercial plans, for 
to use your research in a way that's not exactly a preventative cure of any type of disease or anything, but something a little bit more creative or along that, and something that's a little bit more frivolous or maybe to spice things up or something like that. Uh, <laughs> how much excitement can you stand? <laughs> Just whatever you had in mind, I was really interested. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll use that as a jumping point and, and sort of uh, say that and take off the, the, the point that you made earlier, which is uh, if you look at, at the importance of this technology, uh, just take the medical area, for example. I, I believe that probably by the turn of this century, essentially every new drug that we develop for the treatment of human beings will be somehow touched in its development by recombinant DNA technology. It'll start out with using microorganisms and, and other means to produce the body's own hormones and substances for the treatment of disease so that you're in many cases giving back into the body those things that's missing when it, it gets sick. Uh, it'll go on from there to understanding things for the first time on a molecular basis. You know, uh, why do these genes turn on when you're growing up and turn off when you're an adult? Uh, what, what causes the cells to become cancerous? How can you turn them back into normal cells? All those kinds of things will be tools for the development of, of, of new drugs as well in terms of the treatment of disease. Now that gets me damn excited. Uh, uh, and if you look at uh, movement from there into agriculture, whether it's a animal husbandry or uh, plant technology, being able to do things that plant breeders and others have taken years to do in a very short period of time to improve uh, uh, the quality of, of those areas as well. And, and move on to industrial applications where using microorganisms, uh, something we forget, I think before the World War I, most of our basic chemicals were made by fermentation. And then with the onset of cheap oil, uh, the economics switched over. Well, this technology has the ability to uh, impact even there. Some of the early work we've done cuts seven steps out of the production of vitamin C and uh, that were organic chemical steps. It's done by one microorganisms, and that can may, may make a lot of difference. So I think it's going to have a very broad uh, impact in a whole variety of areas, and uh, what we intend to do is take the technology and see uh, starting first in the area of human health, because I think uh, uh, that is where the technology is, and it's also one of the most important applications. The final comment is that, that what we have been talking about in, in a fairly general way is a technology, genetic manipulation, genetic engineering, recombinant DNA technology. It is a technology. It's a tool. And it can be used, as we have discussed, to a certain extent in uh, industry to, to provide uh, very useful and necessary products for the treatment of disease and for alleviation of mankind's uh, problems. It's also a tool that's used in every, essentially every biological laboratory in the world today. And it's a tool that's used in a way to attack basic questions in biology. 
And uh, I think that a lot of excitement is there. If, if you're interested in such questions as uh, why does a single cell develop into an adult mammal or uh, plant, uh, I think that uh, this technology is going to be important in understanding the steps and the processes that take place in the development of an embryo, which to me is probably one of the most ultimate questions uh, to be asked about ourselves, is how does development take place? So I think it's, it's going to provide um, the, one of the basic technologies for the next uh, 20 years worth of scientific research. And if any of you go into biological sciences, you will use this technology, I can guarantee you that. Uh, so I think it, it has uh, application in, in, in both uh, medical, biomedical, and biological uh, areas, from industry to basic research. The uh, one, one more final comment. If you look at my, my uh, partner over here and then you look at, at me, the one slightly frivolous thing that I've been unable to convince him to work on is a hair growth factor. And uh, yeah, you can see why. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen.